Then, in honor of God's word, if you would please stand and join me in the reading from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in G- Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, once again, uh, we uh, come to you acknowledging our need. Um, You have spoken to us in these verses, and you promise not only to speak to us, but to have your spirit present in our hearts, enabling us to hear. And so that's what we ask for now, Lord, that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts that we might hear you speak to us, that you might show us your glory, the glory of your grace. Please help me to speak faithfully and clearly that your church would be strengthened and that your name would be honored. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as Tom already mentioned, uh, this Tuesday is kind of an historic occasion 500 years ago, the priest Martin Luther got fed up with what he saw as a pretty corrupt practice, this practice called indulgences, where people could spend money to try to get their family members who have died out of purgatory, and he thought this was just nonsense. So he wrote 95 theses, these 95 ideas of why this was wrong, and eventually it got nailed to this door in the middle of town for people to discuss, and completely surprising to him and everyone, it began a chain reaction of enormous consequences that we are still feeling today as now there are both a Catholic and Protestant church, a division that once was not. And that's a bittersweet thing if we think about it because um, the body of Christ is never meant to be divided. We were meant to be united. And yet at the same time, um, what, what happened in, in these different reformers beginning with Luther and then Zwingli and Calvin and others was God by his spirit enabled us to recapture, regain precious, precious truths that our church, the church throughout the world needs to understand because it's what the gospel is all about. And so it's something that we celebrate because there are truths that God showed us again that are glorious, that we need for our souls. 
There's a lot that, that was thought through and talked about during the Reformation, things about worship, things about the way the Lord's Supper, about church, about salvation. But sometimes when people try to summarize, what was this, this time really about? What was it focused on? They'll, they'll mention the five sola. Sola is just a word for, a, the Latin word alone. So we could call them the five alones. That we, when we, that scripture alone is the rule of our faith, what guides and directs us. That is our ultimate authority. To God alone be the glory. That's our purpose. It's God's glory and not ours. And that when it comes to salvation, salvation happens through Christ alone. We take hold of it by faith alone. And all of this, when we understand it clearly, we understand it is by God's grace alone. Those are the, the five solas that oftentimes summarize what's at the heart of the Reformation. Now, each of those are incredibly important. They're, they're worth actually quite a bit of time thinking about. So I won't try to think about all five. I, I want really just to dwell on one of them. And that is that salvation is by grace alone. In, in Luther's time, there was kind of this implicit idea that salvation was kind of a partnership. That God did a lot of really important things through Christ Jesus, but there was something about that we needed to do that was within ourselves to respond for us to be saved. And the Reformers said, no. No, that is not the way it is. We need to understand that everything that has been done for us has been done for us by God. That it is God who gets the glory. That it is God who gets all the boasting. And we get none of the credit because there's nothing that we did that has deserved anything good from God. And they said, if we don't understand this, we don't understand the gospel. And they're fueled by the verses that we just read. At least these are some of the, the key ones. I mean, verses 8 and 9 of the passage that we just read. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do, do you hear what it's saying? That, that when we think of our salvation, there is nothing that we can boast about. Nothing that we should take credit for. It is all God's grace. That was something that they needed to hear very much 500 years ago. And I want to suggest it's something that we desperately need to hear today. Because we are still in a culture of can-do. It's all about God helps those who help themselves. We, even if we have heard this verse again and again, it's not necessarily penetrated to the core of who we are. Now, as I've, as I've been thinking about it this week, I've realized I'm not sure I see as clearly, I know I don't see as clearly as I need to, the bigness of God's grace. I feel like daily I forget what this gospel of grace is about. And so these verses that we have before us are Paul seeking to take this truth and drive it deep into our souls so that we can see the bigness of God's grace. And, and the way that Paul seeks to do this is helping us to see three things. The bigness of our problem, the bigness of his heart, and the bigness of what he has done for us. And so I'd like to consider that with you as we seek together to see God's grace more clearly. First, the bigness of our problem. I have a friend who has a rather unusual hobby. 
She loves watching infomercials. You know, those things that are late at night. She likes, and I, and like, I ask her one time, why in the world would you spend time actually choosing to watch infomercials? And she says it's because it's about life change. Like every infomercial, you see people's lives being transformed. Doesn't matter if it's like sweating with the oldies in Thighmaster or like, you know, proactive skincare or George Foreman grill. It's always the story of my life was changed and she just finds it compelling. And really, each of those stories, for it to work, it always begins with kind of this, this period of despair, of hopelessness. What once was. Now, whether that's, you know, someone being so frustrated with their weight or their thighs and being overweight and just alone, or, or someone having a skin rash that made them feel so completely isolated, or, I don't know, someone not knowing how to, what to have for lunch when we're talking about the George Foreman grill. Whatever it was, it was some form of hopelessness. Because, of course, for us to understand why something is so important, why something is so good, there also needs to be an understanding of how deep the need for it is. And that's something that Paul, of course, understands, not, not in this trivial way of infomercials, but at the real deep level. For us to understand how glorious God's grace is, we need to understand just how desperate our situation was. And so what was our situation? That's where Paul begins in verse 1. He says, this is what you need to understand about yourselves. You were dead. Apart from Christ, without God intervening, you and I were dead. It says, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you once walked. Now that's interesting. He is saying quite literally, you and I, apart from Christ, were the walking dead. I mean, it's not as too far of a stretch to say he's saying that apart from Christ, we are spiritual zombies. Now, I don't know if I've ever seen a zombie movie. I know they are super trendy. They seem to be like in every TV show and video game or whatnot. And so because I've heard about them, I know certain things about zombies. I am no zombie expert, but I do know that zombies are supposed to be people who were once obviously were human, but through some catastrophe, were infected, and so now they have lost their humanity, and now they are subhuman, right? They have, they've lost something important through this, this process. And consequently, as a result, they no longer understand what they once were. They, they no longer are able to see things clearly. They're not able to see reality clearly. They are just driven by these kind of basic desires that move them forward. And the other thing I know about zombies is that they are they're destructive. They're, they're self-destructive. They don't care about their own bodies. They don't care about each other. They're just driven by certain things. And zombies clearly are not good for society. It's always a bad thing. And, and really what, what Paul is saying is that it's not a stretch to see what took place as kind of a spiritual zombie apocalypse. And it's not a zombie apocalypse in the way that the movies are, where there's still a few humans that are fighting for survival. It's completely done. There's nothing left. All of us were the spiritual walking dead, he says. See, in the beginning, humanity was different. In the beginning, when we were made in the way that we were supposed to be, we were beautiful. There was 
a connection with God where we knew that we were loved and we loved him and we knew him. And because of that security that we had, we were able to face life with a fearless joyfulness, with this creative love in which we delighted in giving ourselves to others and to the world. And, and because we were connected to God, the source of life, we had no fear whatsoever of death. That, that's what we once were. But sin, Scripture tells us, has infected us terribly. When we turned our backs on God, we cut ourselves off from the source of security and delight, and that's changed the way that we are towards each other. We're now, instead of love and joy, fear and anger are our disposition. We are incurably selfish in how we are. And the the thing is, we are subhuman. We are not actually what we were meant to be. We are the spiritual walking dead, and we don't even realize it. Because everyone around us is the same way. And we've lost the capacity to even understand what we were supposed to be, what we once were. We've, We've lost that full humanity, Paul says. Now, we don't see it, but there are hints, aren't there? There are hints in the fact that when we look at our world, it's been thousands of years and we still have not figured out how to get along with each other. We still fight war after war. It's been thousands of years and we still don't know how to take care of poverty, even though there are more than enough resources in the world. There is immense poverty at the same time. It's been thousands of years and still we don't know how to deal with the problems of depression, with suicide, with heartbreak. And it's not just out there that we see signs, it's it's within us. When we recognize how we keep on falling short of what we know we need to be, when we see our selfishness towards others, when we recognize our own personal failures, these are all hints, reminders that we are but shadows of what we once were. We are, Paul says, Apart from Christ, the spiritual walking dead. Now, what is it that causes us to be this way? Well, Paul gives us a fairly comprehensive description of of why this is. He says, You are dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. In other words, the world around us, as more and more God is pushed to the side, that shapes us so that it becomes just our default to not even think in terms of God. We follow the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. We don't see it, we don't feel it, but in deep and subtle ways, Satan is at work continuing to keep us in our subhumanity. But the heart of it goes to verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The problem ultimately for our spiritual subhumanity, our our spiritual death is within ourselves. As I said before, we are incurably selfish. Martin Luther um, put it this way. He says that our hearts are curved inward upon themselves. It's an interesting image. The idea is everything we do outwards is always ultimately coming back to me. Now there's times 
that when we do things, that's obvious. There are times that our selfishness is transparent, but even, even those things that appear not selfish, seeking to be kind and good to others, can be out of a desire to appear good and kind to others. Seeking to love God in a certain way can be so that he loves us back. Here's, here's how Luther puts it. He says, man is so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. We use, we use people, we use God. Whatever we are pursuing, it is ultimately for our own good. Our heart is curved in on itself. They are the spiritual walking dead because that is not how we were designed to be. And Paul says that because of this, our condition is lethal. Verse 3, he says, again, that we carrying the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. Not, not children of wrath because God is just losing his temper and can't control it, but because God loves what is good and what is righteous, and he will not let his good world be overrun by those who are spiritually dead. We are sentenced to death. We are spiritually dead, enslaved to Satan, to this world, incurably selfish. This is a huge difference from what you hear generally about ourselves in this culture, isn't it? I mean, how often do we hear, you know, find the truth within you. Believe in yourself. If you set your mind to something, you can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. And I should say, these things are not completely untrue. It's not like we are as bad as we possibly could be. God made us gloriously, and there are still traces of the beauty and the goodness with which God made us. And there's still capacities that we have. And yet, at the very heart of who we are, apart from Christ, there is death. Now, have this image in your mind. Imagine that there is this, you know, motivational speaker filling a stadium with thousands and thousands speaking these things of encouraging and pursuit and believing and that kind of thing but when you look at the crowd all you see is a bunch of zombies who are just kind of nodding their head and saying yeah 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 that's us we are told that we can do it that we're awesome that we just believe in ourselves but deep down we are dead Paul says this is what you once were, and you need to understand the significance, the bigness of the problem. But I don't want you to just understand that. He makes this turn in verse 4, and he says, but God. However big our problem is, but God. But God's heart is far bigger. And that's the second thing he points us to. In three different ways, he speaks of the bigness of God's heart. Now, I realize we're talking about something that's way beyond us, right? I mean, to talk about God's heart, we're just using human language to speak of something that is far beyond us. But still, using whatever language we can, the scripture is telling us that God's passion for us is beyond our comprehension. And it speaks in three different ways. First, it speaks of God's mercy. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy... What is mercy? Mercy is when someone looks and sees someone suffering and they continue to look and they care and they do something about it. The more that I've come to understand what mercy actually is in real life, the more I've realized something about mercy and that is mercy when it is actual mercy is exhausting. 
Perhaps you've had this experience too. Sometimes when someone's going through a need, it's a crisis moment and everyone responds. I think of a time when our youth pastor, when I was in high school, one of their kids was in a really bad situation, like the high fever, there was a fear that she wasn't going to make it, and everyone in the church just dropped everything and did everything they could for this youth pastor. There was mercy all around, and it was beautiful. And we know what that's like. Sometimes there can be almost this joy in, for a crisis moment, dropping everything to help. But what happens when that crisis becomes chronic? When it's, it's not just that moment, but then we realize this sickness is actually something that's going to last months or indefinitely long, and that means giving rides week after week, helping out with meals week after week, praying and crying with someone week after week. And, and what happens beyond that when people who are suffering, because this is oftentimes what happens when people are suffering, start getting ornery and unlikable and maybe not terribly grateful, and that keeps happening week after week. What we discover is that mercy can be exhausting when we really are willing to step in and care for those who are in pain, which is why I think one of our defense mechanisms sometimes is just to kind of like shut our eyes to the suffering that's around us because we know that if we actually see and we actually care, it will cost us. But, but what we see here is that not only is God merciful, he is rich in mercy. Lamentation says his mercies never come to an end. He has a limitless capacity for mercy, which means he looks at you and he looks at me and he sees our suffering and he cares. And he cares day after day after day, even as ornery and unlovely as we are, he cares and he never gets tired of doing something about it. He never gets tired of you because he is rich in mercy because his heart is beyond our comprehension. It doesn't just say rich in mercy. It says, and yet God has loved us. Verse 4, it says, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. We hear all the time this, this language about God loving us, and, and it becomes trite. And I want us just to pause and try to really think about this for a moment. Think for a moment about someone that you love. I'm not talking about romantic love, being in love. I'm talking about having someone in, your, that someone in your life that you care deeply about so that when they are in pain, you feel pain with them. When they succeed, you rejoice with them, where you feel like you would do a whole lot because of that love for that person. Think of a specific person that you love. Now, hopefully you have someone in your mind, and hopefully you are recognizing what that love feels like, what it's like, what we need to understand is that love that we feel for someone else, that is just a taste of how God is towards you. It's just a taste because God's love is a God-sized love. It is with great love. It is far more enormous than we have the capacity to comprehend. God moves heaven and earth. He gives his son into this world, dying for you because of his love for you. 
And notice when it is that God loves you. It says, God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. You know, as we, as we grow up, as we seek to make friends or even get in a dating relationship, we always try to put our best self forward because we know that's our most likable self. But it's only in the context of deep relationships where we let ourselves be seen and known that we can truly experience love because you are only really loved when you are known. And this says God knows you. He knows you when you are in your spiritually walking dead condition, in your pride and your selfishness and everything that you want to hide even from yourself, God sees. And that's the person that he says when he looks, I love you. We are loved beyond our comprehension. That's how big God's heart is. And there's one more thing that it's told, that not only do we see him being rich in mercy, loving with a great love, but it speaks of eternal kindness. Moving forward to verse 7. Verse 7 says that in the coming ages, coming ages is another way of speaking of eternity, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, if you're at any kind of turning point in your life, maybe you're in college or you're about to go to college, people ask, so what's going to happen next? And if you ask God, what's going to happen next? Once you have saved the world, what is your plan? His plan is, I want to show my kindness upon my people forever and ever and ever. Do you know how powerful kindness can be? Think of a time where you have experienced it, where or maybe when you were a kid, your mom knew that you were feeling not so great, so she baked something for you. Or, or a friend just wrote a nice, nice note to you. Or, or a time where you were really grumpy and the person who cares about you, instead of getting defensive, asks how you're doing and gives you a hug. Times when people step out of themselves and they just seek to show kindness to you. And recognize that God's plan is to do that for us forever and ever and ever. As big as our problem is, we were dead in our transgressions. The enormity of God's heart, of his passion, is so far greater. And so that leads to the third truth that our passage points to. With God's great love, what is it that he does? It shows us the bigness of what he has done as well. And what is it that God has done? Well, our problem is that we were spiritually dead. So what does God do for us? Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Everything that we have lost, everything that has been broken, all the beauty that we once gave away when we sinned is being restored to us by God through Christ Jesus. Everything. It says in verse 5 again, we were made alive together by Christ. By grace you've been saved. We were raised us. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ. Verse 10 speaks about how we have been created in Christ. Everything that we need has been given to us in Christ. There is so much here that we do not have enough time to comprehend all that Paul is saying. 
In essence, Paul is saying that when Jesus came to this world and he died for us, everything that he received from the Father, he shares. He shares with everyone who trusts in him. So when he rose again from the dead, God was saying, not guilty. That was his not guilty verdict. I'm raising him from the dead because he does not deserve death. And Jesus shares that with us, and now we receive the not guilty. When he was raised from the dead, God was pouring his spirit upon Jesus to give him life. And now Jesus shares the spirit with us that gives us this new life so that we're no longer the walking dead, but we begin to be changed. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he is brought into the presence of God. He enters into this new kingdom, this new society, and we also now have this new identity as children of God. We now, because Jesus shares it with us, are able to come before God and speak to him. We are citizens of a new kingdom. Every, every, everything that was lost is regained for us through Jesus. And it is impossible to overstate just how big that is. Calvin, trying to, trying to give us a sense of, of what that means for us, speaks of the twofold grace that we have in Christ Jesus. On one hand, through Christ, he says, we have been reconciled. We once were facing death and the wrath of God, but now, through what Jesus has done for us, we are his children, we are forgiven, our sins are completely removed. That's the part of God's grace that we oftentimes focus on. But there's a second grace, he says, that not only have we been reconciled, but we've been renewed. The spirit of life is poured upon our souls so that once we were dead as spiritual zombies, but now we suddenly are made alive. We are given a new capacity, a capacity to love, a capacity to give ourselves, a capacity to worship God that we did not have. Because God loves us far more than just enough to get us so that we're no longer facing death. He wants us to be beautiful. He wants us to be fully and completely human. And so that is what he is doing for us in Christ Jesus even now. We're, it's not immediate. We're still being changed. But, but we're told that we can now put on this new man. There's this new opportunity. There's this new self that we're given even as we, we put away the old so we get rid of those old habits that we had as spiritual walking dead, as we start living into the new life, the full humanity. It doesn't happen all at once, but I will say this. You and I are not the people that we once were when we became Christians, for those of us who have come to Christ. And 20 years from now, we're going to be better than the people we are right now. Because there is this grace not only of reconciling us, but renewing us and making us whole. We were dead, but God's passion for us is beyond our comprehension, and he has restored us. And the word that God uses, that Paul uses to cover all of that, is grace. Verse 8, again, coming back to what we said before, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you understand what this is saying? That God gives and he gives and he gives. And our role is not to say, now I'm going to earn it. Now I'm going to prove myself. But instead, to receive and receive and receive. We desperately need to understand this. 
Because until we recognize this, we won't ever understand what it means that God is our God and we are the creatures. As long as we think it needs to be a partnership, that we're kind of side by side with God, we'll never understand the way things are. But God is God. He is the giver. We are the creatures. We are the ones who receive. And the moment that we start getting restored to that, the moment we start experiencing what it is to be human. Because here's what happens when we start recognizing grace and allowing it to change our souls. It changes everything about us. Let me, let me just close with three ways that that's true. When you understand that you have, have no reason for boasting before God because it's all of grace, your anger will shrink. Your resentment will shrink. Because right now, as long as we think that we are the ones who work for what we deserve, we feel like certain things are owed to us, and we get frustration when life doesn't give us what we think we deserve. But when we realize, I have no reason to boast, I was a spiritual zombie and God has rescued me, then we realize nothing is deserved and everything is a gift and we're able to experience it with joy. When we start seeing the bigness of God's grace, and that takes away our disdain for others. You know, we are in a society right now where there's an enormous amount of disdain, isn't there? You know, one side speaks about the closed-minded, bigoted right. The other speak of those fragile, lazy, snowflake left, or whatever, you know, whatever derogatory terms, it's always disdain. And every time we show disdain, that implies that we think we're better than the other person. But that is nonsense. There is no boasting. It's all of grace. When we see the bigness of God's grace, disdain is removed. When we see the bigness of God's grace, then anxiety and and fear are lessened. Because our lives are so much built on the idea that it's up to us to make our lives okay. That we have to prove ourselves, that we have to do things right. If we don't get things just right, it's our fault. But here's the thing you and I need to understand. You and I have already completely blown it. That ship has completely sailed. Everything now is God looking and seeing what we deserve and instead saying, I'm going to show kindness, I'm going to show love, I'm going to show mercy. Which means you and I have no reason to fear because it's not up to us. We have a God who smiles upon us. And that, when we see it, takes away our anxiety. Do you, do you recognize what it means that it is all of God's grace? Calvin, I'll I'll, I'll close with his words since it's Reformation Sunday. He sums things up well. He says, our assurance, our glory, and the sole anchor of our salvation is that Christ the Son of God is ours. And we, in turn, are in him sons of God, called to the hope of eternal blessedness by God's grace not by our worth. Knowing that we have a merciful and gracious God, I invite us just to take some time praying to God, maybe confessing things where we have been denying grace, where we have sought to kind of prove ourselves to God, and acknowledging that all is of God. And then I'll lead us in a time of confession in a little while.
Lord God, you see us far more clearly than we see ourselves. You see our own self-deception. You see our pride. You see our desire to be independent because we don't want to depend upon you, because we want to kind of choose our own way. Lord, all of these things we confess before you. We confess, Lord, that we have not trusted your promises of grace, that in parts of our life we have not let you be God. And Lord, knowing that you are merciful, that you see us, you see even the inadequacy of our confession right now and you forgive, we ask for forgiveness through Christ Jesus and knowing that in Christ we are also renewed, Lord, we ask that you would renew our hearts, that you would help us to see your mercy, your love, your kindness, your grace, that it might renew us and make us more and more your own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hearing the good news of the gospel, let's once again use uh, this portion of Luther's shorter catechism. Christian, what do we mean when we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy Christian church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the flesh, and eternal life together. I believe that by my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but instead the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, made me holy, and kept me in the true faith, just as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and makes holy the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one common true faith. Daily in the Christian church, the Holy Spirit abundantly forgives all sins, mine and those of all believers. On the last day, the Holy Spirit will raise me and all the dead and will give to me and all believers in Christ eternal life. This is most certainly true. Thanks be to God. <laughs>